such a delight to be here. And we trust if you're visiting on uh, this Master's Monday, you're enjoying your experience here on the campus. I suppose the best recommendation for a, a movie, a restaurant, a business is a satisfied customer. And as a father of three daughters who attended this school and graduated, I want to tell you I'm a satisfied customer. Uh, we have a deep love for this school. We appreciate its professors and their godly example, its president and his leadership, both here and across the world. And uh, the fact that not only did they get a good education, but they received wisdom that is ageless. Uh, the Proverbs reminds us, in all you're getting, get wisdom. When I was a little boy back in Bel Belfast, my mom used to send me to get some groceries, and she'd always finish by saying, whatever you do, don't forget the bread, the butter, and the milk. There's some things you can't do without. And Proverbs says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is another. Come to Master's College. We'll give you great knowledge of all the sciences and all the categories of education, but I believe you'll get biblical wisdom that will set you up for a successful life. Well, it's a, it's a delight to be back. It doesn't seem so long ago when I was here, which always reminds me of the story about the, the lady whose husband disappeared, and she uh, called the police about his absence, and the officer came and said, you know, Madam, if we're going to put um, uh, an APB out uh, on, on your husband, I'll need a bit of a description. And she says, well, um, he's tall, uh, handsome, he's got blonde wavy hair, he's got chiseled features, he's got the body of an Olympian, and, uh, 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 you know, he's universally loved here in our neighborhood. And the officer says, well, you know what, that's very helpful, that, that gives us something to go on. And so he leaves, and the friend he was sitting, listening to her give a description of her husband, said, you know what? That's not your husband. He's short, he's bald, he's ugly, he's fat, and the kids hate him. <laughs> to which she says, I know that, but who wants him back? <laughs> well, I I'm back. I'm back, and I hope, uh, I hope that, that that's a good thing. And uh, we're going to turn to God's Word uh, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I want, I want to speak on the subject of fearless. This is a week where we're preparing our hearts for Easter. The colossal truth that Christ is risen. When I was at Shepherds this year, H.B. Charles, an African-American pastor from Atlanta, said something I haven't forgotten. He said, do you realize that Christianity is the only religion in the world in which its followers go to the grave of its founder to make sure he's not there? That's powerful. This is at the heart of our faith, the death of Christ on Good Friday, the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday, and all of that implication. And one of the implications, I think, of Easter and the events that surround it is that you and I ought to be living fearless lives. Lives marked by confidence and marked by courage. And I hope to make that clear in a moment or two. I do like the story of the little fellow who was part of a school play. He only had one line, the master, and it was this, it is I, be not afraid. And he did his homework, and then the evening of the performance came. And I don't know whether it was the glare of the lights or the intimidation of the crowd, but he got more than nervous. 
And when he came out to say his line, it is I, be not afraid, he said this, it's me and I'm scared. <laughs> now, if you've lived long enough to be scared, then you can identify with that kid because life brings with it certain fears. And we've got to face those fears. We've got to conquer them. We've got to manage them, lest they manage us. The soldier fears death. The lover fears rejection. The sportsman fears failure. The school child fears bullies. The widow fears loneliness. The dying fears hell. And the fearful fear everything. To live or to die is to face fear. But the message of Easter is we can face down the fears we face. Because, you see, courage is not the absence of fear. It's its management. Courage is fear under control. And Easter helps us manage fear and the surrounding events. Peace and not panic is the mood of Easter. It struck me when I was reading John 20 uh, just uh, recently that the Lord Jesus Christ, after His resurrection, meets His fearful disciples. And in verse 19 we read, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Scroll down to verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Scroll down to verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. In the context of fear, the risen Christ speaks peace to his disciples. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should make us fearless. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined faith as a refusal to panic. And Easter, in all its implications, should help us to refuse to panic. And so, for a few moments, I want us to look at the message and the movement of Easter. We're actually going to be more topical this morning. We're going to look at Good Friday. We're going to look at Easter Sunday. We're going to look at the Ascension and we're going to look at Pentecost, and we're going to see how each of these can help us be fearless in some aspect of our life and of our living. And I do want to acknowledge that the seed thoughts of this sermon I got from the writings of Warren Wearsby, although I've done my own thinking and reflection on it. In fact, Warren Wearsby once said that there's nobody that's really original in the pulpit. We need to milk everybody and make our own butter. Well, I milked him, but I'm making my own butter. And here's our outline. <coughs> here's our outline. Good Friday will help us look back and not be afraid. Easter Sunday will help us look ahead and not be afraid. The Ascension will help us look up and not be afraid. And Pentecost will help us look in and not be afraid. Corrie ten Boom, who spent some time in the concentration camp 
Ravensbrück, where she lost her sister Betsy, and almost her life is famous for saying, worry is the cycle of inefficient thoughts swirling around the center of fear. I want to make you think big. We're going to think sufficiently for a few moments about the gospel, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and descending and procession of the Holy Spirit from the presence of Christ in heaven. So let's look at the first thought, Good Friday. Good Friday will help us look back and not be afraid. Let me explain. Someone has said that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so many men are crucified between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday and the worries of tomorrow. How true that is the regrets of yesterday. If we look back over our lives, the path is strewn with failure, with falling short of God's glory. We live in arrears, morally speaking. When God looks at our lives, He gives us a failing grade. Psalm 130 and verse 3 says this, If God was to mark iniquity, who would stand? If God was to tally up our rap sheet, would we pass the test? Would we meet with His approval? Certainly not. Who would stand? None of us. Isaiah said, I am undone in God's presence. Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. John fell as a dead man in the presence of God's holiness and the radiance of His glory. It is a fact this morning, young people, that you and I together have fallen short of God's glory. The short story of our life is written in the black ink of sinful thoughts and indeed godless actions. And we cannot look forward for looking back. The guilt of our sin and the condemnation that comes with it. But that's why I want to go briefly to that Friday afternoon on a hill called Calvary outside the city of Jerusalem where our precious Lord Jesus Christ hangs upon a cross. And late into that afternoon, He cries, It is finished. That's powerful. That's one, that's three words in the English text, but one word in the Greek text. Tetelestai. In that day, it was a word that was used by merchants. It would be written on a receipt of bills. You would read Tetelestai. It is paid in full. That's what Jesus cried on the cross that Friday afternoon at Easter. Paid in full. That's how you can read that. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries, paid in full. What was paid in full? Well, Isaiah, the evangelical prophet of the Old Testament, tells us, doesn't he? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And our chastisement was laid on him. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
That's the wonderful truth of Good Friday, that if you and I will put our faith where God put our sin on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven, and we can look back and not be afraid because the debt of our sin has been erased. The record of our transgressions has been covered. What a happy thought. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and so transgressions have been covered. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I hope you're a happy soul this morning, because your sins have been forgiven. You're no longer in arrears, the purchase price has been paid in the coinage of Christ's suffering, and our freedom has been written in the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, that idea of our sin being nailed to the cross is a biblical one. Go over with me for a moment to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. And here's what we read concerning the work of Christ for us. And you, being dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's the idea of Psalm 130 and verse 3. If God is to mark iniquity, if God puts a line under our lives right now and tallies up our lives, morally speaking, we're in arrears. Our lives are contrary to His will. We have fallen short of His glory. We have not lived the, the, the created purposes of God. And Paul acknowledges that. But here's what he says about that writing that's against us. It's been wiped out, taken out of the way. Notice the end of verse 14. Having nailed it to the cross. The IOU of your sin and my sin has been nailed to the top of Christ's cross. You know that when Jesus was crucified, an indictment was nailed above his head. Remember how Pilate had them write an indictment? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is thinking about that, the indictment above the cross. Often the, 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 the crucified person's sin or lawlessness or charge would be nailed, you know? Thief, murderer, insurrectionist. Jesus, he claims to be the king of the Jews. But Paul is saying above that, do you notice the IOU of your sin? Kneel to the cross. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was kneeled to his cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. That's a wonderful truth that you and I in the light of Good Friday, can look back and not be afraid. In the presence of a holy God, we have a righteousness that's not ours. It's been given, it's been imputed, and it's ours by faith. 
And that righteousness is rooted in what Christ has done for us on the cross. I love the story of Martin Luther. It's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and that great leader of that movement once had a dream that was really more of a nightmare, and he awakened in the middle of the night. There standing at the foot of his bed was this figure he believed to be the devil himself. And then his hand was a scroll. He began to unroll the scroll and read from it. And on the scroll was all of Martin Luther's sins. All the sins he had committed. The sins of omission. The sins of commission. The devil ran, read them off one by one. It was all an accurate account. And pointing his bony finger in the face of Martin Luther, he condemned him and said, what hope have you of ever entering into heaven? For if God is to mark iniquity, who will stand? And Martin Luther began to feel his soul slip closer to hell. Yet at that very moment, the Lord speaks to Martin Luther in this dream. And he says, Martin, tell the devil to unroll the scroll all the way down. And the devil fights that and refuses to do that, but Martin Luther proclaims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the devil submits and reluctantly proceeds, and he unscrolls the scroll all the way down to the bottom where we read these words, this entire sin account of Martin Luther has been paid and filled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That scroll, that IOU, that receipt has been nailed to the cross. And you and I can get up this morning knowing that we live under the smile of heaven, not its frown. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful thing, to get up and enjoy the freedom of God's forgiveness and the security of Christ's righteousness. So there's the first thought, big picture. We want to live fearless lives. Good Friday encourages us to look back and not be afraid. Number two, Easter encourages us to look ahead and not be afraid. You see, for many people, the future is not what it used to be. The future is unknown, and that's a scary prospect in itself. No man knows what a day can bring forth. And whatever the future holds, we have no control over that, so we feel exposed and vulnerable. And we become frightened about the future. We become frightened about the past, and we become frightened about the future. We become crucified between the regrets of yesterday and the worries of tomorrow. But that too has been answered in the cross and in Easter Sunday. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Follow along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, notice these words, begotten us again to a living hope. Circle that. A living hope through the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. 
Our sin was nailed to the cross on Good Friday. Christ rises on Easter Sunday. That indeed sends a message that there's hope in the living Christ who was raised from the dead. And and to us he has brought an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. I hope you are this morning. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of His second coming. Whom having not seen, we love. Though now we do not see him, yet believing, we rejoice with joy, inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith in the salvation of your souls. This is the promise of hope. Man can live without water for a few days, food for a few weeks, but we can hardly live a second without hope. What breath is to the body, hope is to the soul. And we have got it in spades. We have been born again to a living hope. It's a living and lasting hope. It's the hope of a better life. It's the hope of a coming world in which there's no crying and no sighing and no dying. It's an endless hope rooted in Christ's victory over death and hell. It's a living hope that promises Christ's return to earth in power and glory. It's a steadfast hope in that it assures us an inheritance in heaven. This is a, a living hope. Listen to these words by Sam Albury in a book on the resurrection called Lifted. We can see why this hope is so different. It is not based on my circumstances and prospects. It comes through Jesus' resurrection. It is therefore independent of those things. For this reason, it is a living hope. It has a life of its own that can endure even the worst experiences of life in this world. It is grounded in what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. It is hope that is totally contingent upon a particular event. And because that event has happened, our hope is secure. Not wishful thinking hope, but guaranteed hope. I love that. Where's our hope this morning? Where's our expectation? Where's our confidence about a brighter tomorrow and a better world to come? It's in an event that took place outside the city of Jerusalem many moons ago. An event that has been proven and attested. An event that's independent of anything that's going on in your life. Because hopes die, don't they? Our health can be taken away and the hope of a long life vanish with it. The job market can rob us of the hope of a good career and a wholesome wage. The hope of marriage and love can fall apart in broken relationships. Hopes die 
But this is a living hope that never dies. Because this is a hope that has life in itself. Independent of you, me, and our circumstances and anything that's been taken from us or anything that anybody's doing to us. That's why these early Christians were such bright souls. Where we can read here this exhortation to to greatly rejoice even now for a little while you're grieved by various trials. Because you see, it's hard to defeat a man or kill his spirit when he's got always something to live for and look forward to. That's a hard man to defeat. That's a hard woman to beat. But that's the Christian man. That's the Christian woman who's been born again unto a living hope that never dies because Christ lives forevermore. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Root your hope in Jesus Christ, and you'll always have hope. People will disappoint you. Your dreams will fall short. Life will rob you of that which you count precious. But my friend, Jesus Christ to you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have a living hope. And Good Friday tells us we can look back and not be afraid because our sins have been covered. And Easter Sunday tells us we can look ahead into the future and not be afraid because we have a living hope rooted in the fact of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of His soon return. I like that. You may have heard the story of the the fellow who's hanging over the side of the cruise ship, pretty sick from seasickness. There's been a little bit of rough sea, and he's as green as the water below him. And he's hanging over the side of the ship, miserable. And one of the crew comes along and kind of comes along, throws his arm around him and says, you know what, I've seen this before. Don't worry about it. It'll pass. In fact, I want to tell you, in all my experience at the sea, no one has ever died of seasickness. To which the man looks up forlorn and says, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. It's the hope of dying that keeps me alive. That's no hope. We have a hope that's living, that never dies. And get it deep into your hearts. Find that upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is the one who was dead, but He's yet alive and lives forevermore, stands amidst the churches, Revelation 1, verse 18, and He walks with you through life. And whatever comes your way, you'll meet it in the power and in the presence and in the security of the living Christ and the hope of the resurrection. Easter, we can look ahead and not be afraid. Good Friday, we can look back and not be afraid. Well, let's talk about the ascension. Because after Jesus dies, He rises three days later, and some days after that, He ascends 
and is received back into the heavens. The glory which he had with the Father is now being restored and returned to him. We have this wonderful thought that Christ is in heaven, and he appears at the right hand of God. And there he intercedes for you and for me, and he represents us. So if Good Friday allows us to look back and not be afraid because our sins are forgiven, and Easter Sunday allows us to look ahead and not be afraid because we've been born again unto an endless hope, rooted in the living Christ, proven in the resurrection, the ascension tells us we can look up and not be afraid. See, many people have a view of God that He's distant, He's detached, He's deaf, probably angry. He's removed and unmoved about the human experience. They assume that the details of their lives never make the headlines in heaven, but that's not true. We know otherwise. The ascension tells us otherwise, because following His resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared in heaven. Let me give you a couple of verses just to underscore this, and then we'll make an application or two. But if you go to the book of Romans, in that great chapter, chapter 8, and verse 34, listen to what Paul says. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What's Jesus doing now? He's risen. He's alive. He's active. What's he doing now? Paul tells us he's making intercession for you and for me. This is reinforced in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, or Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24. But he, because he continues forever, there's that living hope idea, but he, Jesus Christ, he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You get the same thought over in chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You know, as evangelical Protestants, rightly so, we focus on the finished work of Christ. It is finished. To tell us die. Paid and fool. But you realize there's an unfinished work of Christ? That he continues to work on our behalf? That he ever lives to make intercession for us? That he appears in heaven for us? Do you realize that Christ carried our humanity to the heights of the throne? Do you realize there's a man in glory this morning? who was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin? 
And we can go to Him. And He doesn't sit on a throne of granite. He's not unremoved. He's not unmoved. He feels our pain. He understands our emotions. He knows what we're going through. He was tempted and tested and tried in all points. The amazing thing is he never failed the test. He was tempted to a point you and I will never know. He was at a threshold way beyond us. He can identify with us. And we can go with our burdens and our questions and our heartaches and our fears and we can talk to him because he represents us in heaven and he resources us in heaven. Listen to Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people for in that he himself suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He can aid He can support. He can help you this morning because he understands he has breathed our air. He has walked in our shoes. He has lived our lives on the cross. He has died our death and he has ascended to the right hand of God and he still has that body now glorified and there's a man in glory who's representing us and resourcing us. That he, that's Hebrews 4 and 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That, that word come boldly or come confidently is a Greek word, and William Lane points this out in his commentary. It means bold frankness. In secular Greek, it was used to denote free speech. In private spheres, in private conversation, it spoke about candor between friends. What a beautiful picture. When you and I go into God's presence, We we don't go in as a frightened subject in the presence of a king who's frightened that a slip of the tongue will end their life. The throne room of God for the child of God is more like a living room where we're welcome into the Father's presence and His Son is there speaking for us and on our behalf and He encourages us to come and share what burdens us and breaks our spirit and clouds our future and paralyzes our present. What a beautiful thought. You know, my father's 84. I ducked home a few weeks ago to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday, surprised him and her. They didn't know I was coming. And he still works in the local government there. And for a time in his life, he was the Lord Mayor of a borough of uh, Belfast. And one of the highlights of his time as the Lord Mur was he was asked to, to receive Princess Anne 
one of Queen Elizabeth's daughters, part of the royal family. It was a disability center that was being opened up, and my dad was there to receive her. Now, he was told about royal etiquette and what would be required. My, my mother would have to learn how to curtsy in the presence of Princess Anne, and my father was told this, that you know what? When the princess comes along and you shake her hand, you say this, William, good morning, your royal highness. Welcome to Newton Abbey. Now, if she says something to you, you can say something to her. But if she doesn't say anything to you, don't you say anything to her. Well, my mother spent a few days learning the curtsy. My father was thinking, you know what? What a blessing. I left school when I was 14. I'm just a working class, blue-collar man. I'm going to meet one of the, the princesses of the royal family. And he spent days thinking about what he might say. And, and the big day comes, and... My mom does her curtsy, and my father welcomes Princess Anne. Good morning, your royal highness. Welcome to Newton Abbey. And she gives him the stoic royal nod and moves down the line without saying a word. Bummer. <laughs> William didn't get to say what he wanted to say to the princess. And when he shared that, and I could hear kind of the, the frustration and the letdown in his voice one day over the phone, I just said, you know what, Dad? But you get to speak to the King of Kings each and every day, don't you? Amen. Maybe you've met a princess, a prince, maybe not. But you know the Prince of Life and the King of Kings, and he invites you to come into his presence. And if that's true, then you can look up and not be afraid just finally, time's gone. Let's wind it forward to Pentecost. Fearless. Jesus said to those disciples, peace. Peace is the legacy of Easter, not panic. And if Good Friday tells us we can look back and not be afraid, and Easter Sunday tells us we can look ahead and not be afraid, and and the ascension tells us we can look up and not be afraid. Pentecost tells us we can look in and not be afraid. We can look in and not be afraid. Life's demanding, young people. It's not easy to develop our full potential. It's not easy to build a lasting marriage. It's not easy to secure a successful career. It's not easy to serve the Lord across a lifetime with excellence. It's not easy to remain faithful to the Lord over the course of years. In fact, life is rather demanding. At times it can seem overwhelming. In fact, we can agree with Paul. Who is up for this? Who's sufficient for these things? Well, well None of us are in and of ourselves. But the wonderful truth of Pentecost is that Jesus Christ ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to live in the lives of his children. Do you realize this? That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were not only given the gift of eternal life, you were given the giver himself. The Holy Spirit who regenerates us and makes us alive to the one who is alive, he now dwells in us. Jesus promised that. We don't have time to go here because time is gone, but write down John 7, 37 to 39, and John 16, 7. 
where we read that Jesus said, you know what? Someone's going to come, and from within you is going to bubble up water, streams of living water. And he spoke of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come, for Jesus was not yet glorified. And Jesus said to his disciples after, before his own death and resurrection, it's expedient that I go away so that the Helper can come. Because if I don't go away, he won't come. But Jesus has gone away, and the Helper has come. And in John 14, 16, 26, 15, 26, and 16, 7, that's how the Holy Spirit is described as a Helper. Parakletos. It's a Greek Two words, to come alongside. Called to come alongside. It's the picture of the teacher called alongside the student to help them learn. It's the picture of the EMT called alongside the road victim. It's the picture of the coach running up and down the sideline of the field encouraging the team. God's help is available to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Listen to this word as we move towards the close. Romans 8, verse 11. This is a striking verse. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. The same power that brought Jesus Christ's body back to life. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in you and wants to bring life, strength, grace, mercy, and vitality to your experience. That's why Paul prays for the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 11. This is striking. I pray that you might be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Listen to Derek Tidball. By His might is glorious. He means the might of a sovereign creator who brought the world into being out of nothing, of a miraculous Savior who brought His oppressed people out of Egypt, of a majestic deity who showed Himself in thunder and lightning in Sinai, of a triumphant life-giver who brought Jesus Christ from the dead through the resurrection. We need have no fear that His resources will be adequate. He can more than strengthen us for the task. We may be feeble and inadequate, but no matter, He is not. I pray that you might be strengthened with all might according to His glorious might. That's Exodus language. That's creation language. That's Easter language. And that's the power that courses through our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Adrian Rogers is right. If Christians realized they were inhabited, they'd be less inhibited. We can do all things within the will of God, no matter how hard, for the glory of God, because Christ strengthens us. The Holy Spirit provides within us an artesian well whereby we have been given grace to forgive, obey, persevere, love, and witness for Him. 
I love C.H. Spurgeon. And when I read his life story, I've read several books on his life story, my head spins. Because this guy had so many plates up in the air at any one time. He was the pastor of a growing church, a mega church before there were mega churches. They started an orphanage, had to raise money for the orphans. He started a pastor's college in London, was the principal there giving lectures. He traveled throughout England, the British Isles, and some other places doing evangelistic work. I mean, his resume is, 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 is incomparable. So much so that David Livingstone, the, the missionary from Africa, in his presence said, you know what, Mr. Spurgeon, I look at all that you, you do. I don't know how you do it. You, you, you seem to do the work of two men. To which Spurgeon replied, you forget, my friend, there are two of us. You forget, my friend, there are two of us. It is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me, is Spurgeon really saying. The indwelling power of the Spirit of God strengthening him. We can look in and not be afraid because there is within us the power and presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we realize we're inhibited, we won't be inhabited, we won't be as inhibited. It's me. And I'm scared. All been there. But listen, Good Friday will help you look back and not be afraid. Easter Sunday will help you look ahead and not be afraid. The Ascension will help you look up and not be afraid. And Pentecost will help you look in and not be afraid. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time this morning in chapel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this call to be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Lord, make us fearless. Help us to realize our legacy, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Forgive our timidity. Forgive us from running away from challenges because we have looked to ourselves and not you because we are sufficient in you. Lord, thank you for these great truths. Thank you that our sins have been nailed to the cross. Thank you that we have a hope that will last as long as Jesus lives. We thank you that there's a man in glory who resources us. We thank you we have a friend and comfort in the Holy Spirit who makes us adequate for all that God calls us to do. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing.